Welcome to Evangelistic Center Church. It is a blessing to be here. Uh, I hope that I keep my thoughts straight today. I feel like we're operating on about two hours of sleep, but uh, it, it is a privilege to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. And uh, I've thought a lot about in the last several weeks. I've been just mulling over. Seems like stuff I listen to on podcast or I study. It all comes back to the gospel. The gospel has just kind of been on my heart uh, lately, as of late. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the gospel today, but it might not sound like the gospel, but stick with me, and I think maybe we'll be able to bring this into something that will make a lot of sense. So I want to begin today with a question, uh, and, and I don't want you to answer out loud, but just think about it for a second. What do you think of when you hear the word scandal? Or maybe if you were even to say uh, the word scandalous, what kind of things come to your mind when you, when you think about a scandal? Uh, and maybe you think about a politician being caught doing something that, that he shouldn't have done, maybe something illegal or inappropriate, that certainly is a scandal. Um, maybe you have uh, in mind a, a person that was caught in an extramarital affair, we would certainly consider that to be a scandal. Um, I knew a person several years ago uh, that lived not far from Rusty and I that was caught embezzling money from the bank they worked at. And certainly, I would, I would believe that that would be a scandal. Wouldn't you think those are scandals? I would call those a scandals. And I think those, were, those are all scandals. And I think we can consider them scandalous. Uh, and I would define a scandal kind of like this. It's just an action that most people would consider morally or legally wrong. Um, and that it causes public outrage. So when somebody does something they shouldn't and it gets the public all fired up, I think that's a scandal, right? I would call that scandalous. Now... This morning, I want to challenge you with another idea for scandal. I want to challenge you with another way to think about something that is scandalous. So if somebody was caught red-handed in an especially heinous sin, you know, they were, they were caught and it was a big deal. Maybe you can even think like in Scripture, uh, the woman that was caught in adultery and the, the, the leaders were going to stone her to death. You all remember that story, right? Um, and we would consider that a scandal. But, but what about this? What if somebody that was caught in this sin something that was really difficult, something that was bad, something the Bible clearly said that you should not do. Um, or let's even take it outside the church. How would you just feel in general about somebody um, being caught red-handed in something scandalous, but they were never punished, that nothing ever happened to them? And you, could, you don't have to look far in politics, in America, in the media to find something that somebody has done that would merit punishment, but yet somehow they get off, they, they get away with it, right? Let's just be honest. Does that annoy you? Yeah, because we like people to, we like people to pay for their mistakes, right? That's human nature. We want to see people pay when they've done something wrong. And so I think not only could the act be scandalous, but in many ways, we consider if somebody got away with something, we consider that scandalous too, right? And we'll often be upset with people that were charged with punishment who shirked their responsibility and let those folks get away scot-free, right? And that's scandalous also. We would consider that our government or our leadership, the police department, whoever it would be, if let's say there were a hundred eyewitnesses to a murder, a hundred people saw somebody commit murder, and the person that that these hundred people, let's say maybe it was 150 of us that are at church today, we saw the murder, we saw the person do it, you even had footage on your cell phone, they were arrested, they were tried, and then they were convicted by a jury of his peers, imagine this, and then 
when you get to the sentencing phase before the judge and the judge says, you know what, I think I'm feeling kind of generous today. I'm not going to give you any punishment at all. You're free to go. Would that be scandalous? I mean, let's be honest. Would that be scandalous? I mean, right, are y'all awake today? I'm the one that should be sleepy. Are y'all, y'all awake today? That would be scandalous. Uh, and it would be scandalous because we would be outraged that somebody that could have done something so sinful, something so horrible, and got away with it, we would all be upset, and rightfully so. None of us would think it was a good idea to set a murderer free, right? We can at least agree on that. We would say that that, that judge, now here's a scandal, that judge doesn't need to be in his job anymore because he really dropped the ball on this. Now, let me offer you this idea today. I would, I would offer to you that we have all benefited in a way, we have benefited in a way that the world would call scandalous. We have received something that the world, and when I say the world, I merely mean people that haven't trusted their lives to the power of the, the saving power of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ. We have benefited in a way that those people would say is scandalous. And here's why I would say it this way, because every one of us are guilty in the highest court in the land that, but even though we are guilty in this high court, in the court that has say over every other court, even though we are guilty, something has happened that allowed you and I to escape punishment for everything that we've done wrong. Something has happened that allowed us to escape punishment for our sin. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this about me, but I'm going to be honest. I'm saying it about you too. I have lied. I have stolen. I have cheated. I have hated. I have been mean and angry and jealous and covetous. I've done all of those things. I have everything in the Bible that you can read that says you're not supposed to do that. I'm guilty of those. And if you're sitting there today and you're saying, well, I don't think I'm guilty of fill in the blank, uh, don't ask Jesus if you are. Because you will find out that all of us are in the same boat. We are all liars and cheaters and haters. And you say, well, I don't hate anybody. You might not today, but you have hated someone in the past. Amen? You have told a lie somewhere. And maybe you say, well, I don't know. I can't remember telling a lie. I can promise you, you left something off your taxes. <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. It really wasn't, was it? We don't, there ain't nothing funny about taxes. If you believe the Bible, and I do, do I have any Bible believers in here with me today? If you believe the Bible, and I do, then all of us are also murderers. You say, no, I've not killed anybody. Well, let me just, I'm just, can I use Jesus' words on you for today? Can I take this right out of Scripture? 1 John 3, 15 says this, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. <laughs> I mean, I think, even, I think even the media could get that right. Everybody who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So if you've ever hated someone, if you're here, and you've hated someone, then I got news. You're a murderer. And, and as I'm beginning this sermon this way, I can tell you that what I'm saying uh, isn't f- received very well in society today. 
Nobody ever wants to be guilty of doing anything wrong. But the Bible is really clear, church, that we are all in this canoe together. We have all hated and stolen and lied and cheated. And we've hated somebody that made us guilty of murder. Of murder. And so if you are here today and you have flesh and blood, then you and I alike have made a mess of our lives. We have all figured out how to completely mess up our lives. Yet in eternity, we will go without punishment. Into eternity, you and I will go unpunished into eternity because God sent you and I a lifeline. He was able to, God looked down from heaven and he saw man that he loved, but, his, but we were obscured from him by sin that he hated. And God found himself with a conundrum. He found himself uh, in a place with a problem because he saw you and I that he loved, but we were separated by sin that he hates. And so God made a way for you and I to be reconciled to God. And when that, when Christ came, when that reconciliation came, then you and I are the recipient of what today I'm going to call scandalous grace because it's a scandal that I could get away with all the junk that I've done wrong and walk into eternity a free man. I could walk into eternity free. And I can because Christ took my place. And because of him, I will not receive justice. And if you've accepted Christ, nor will you. I will not receive justice for my sin, but instead I will receive mercy. And I think people would just in general call that a scandal. I think they would call it a scandal because they would recognize, hey, you're guilty. And they're right, I am. I've received this grace, and, and it, it's a scandal. Now, I want to be clear, because I don't want anybody to think that I'm actually saying that his grace is scandalous, because God's great. God doesn't have jealousy or fear or sin, that we can't speak negative of God, because in him there's light and no darkness at all. His grace isn't scandalous, but his grace is so perfect and so complete that you and I will never have to pay, pay for our mistakes, and for the world, they would consider that scandalous. Right? So the grace that you and I are walking in today, if the world fully understood it, they would say, that's not fair. And the beauty today is what I want you to leave with today. I want you to leave with this attitude, with this heart. You're right. This isn't fair. But praise the Lord that I've received that anyway. Amen? Anytime anybody ever tells me, Noah, you, you talk about grace too much, I want to make sure that this is clear on the table. It is impossible for me to talk about grace too much. It's impossible. And I'm going to show you why. We're going to continue, and I'm going to show you why that I think that we can never talk too much about grace. Now, uh, in terms of our sin and the scandal that we've received grace, I want you to know that um, if you know Jesus, that you have escaped punishment for your sin. But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm getting ready to say. You have escaped punishment for your sin, but your sin does require punishment. Somebody has to pay. And see, if, if you'll notice what Christ said, and I think this verse is used out of context a lot, but you notice that when they were talking to Christ about the law, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. And he couldn't abolish the law because then God would not be acting justly. He would not be adhering to his word. He would not be walking in accordance with how he set the world up. 
Sure, God could have just come and said, guess what? There's no more law, so now there's no more sin. But that's not how he set up the kingdom. Because God gave you and I a choice. He gave Adam and Eve a choice in the garden. And he plainly said, you can do whatever you want. But in order for you to have the free will to love me, I'm going to set this one condition. And it's up to you whether or not you will listen to me. And he said, you see that tree? Stay away from it. Now, God could have just said, well, because I love you, then there's no such thing as sin. But then God would not be acting justly. See, Christ did not come and do away with the law. What he did was better. He fulfilled it. And it is different. There's a difference. Does that make sense? There's a difference in the law. There's a difference between saying, okay, well, there's just no more law, so now you're not guilty. But there's a difference between that and the law still stands. The law is in effect, and you will be judged by the law. But I'm going to send someone that's going to live that law perfectly, and then they're going to pay for what you did. Because sin deserves punishment, and somebody's got to pay for what we are doing. And, and maybe today you're saying, come on, Noah, this is basic stuff. Everybody knows that Jesus was crucified for us. And I certainly understand your sentiment. But I want to submit to you today that our forgiveness costs way more than you and I typically understand. I believe, I, and I believe that because I know too many Christians who live this way, and if I'm talking about you, make today the day you repent. But too many Christians live spiritless, shallow, and thankless lives. Too many people who call themselves Christians have no idea what Jesus really did for them. And that's the only explanation I have for the way they live. Nobody that fully understands what they've received in Christ, no one would ever live a fruitless and a shallow life. You wouldn't do it. And in so many churches, people think that pastors talk about being at church and faithfulness and reading the Bible and prayer, and that it just sort of becomes this humdrum, well, it's just another religious thing that we got to go to church and listen to. But the reason that pastors everywhere talk about this is we want ourselves and the churches that we minister to to understand that sin requires punishment, and we are guilty before the Creator. We are guilty of, of hatred and murder and strife and anxiety and lying and backbiting and gossiping but the lamb of god that was holy from the foundation of the world till till the time he showed up here that lamb died to pay for what you did wrong and if he did then shouldn't we live that way and nobody that understands this would live a life that's fruitless nobody would and and here's why because if you are saved and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm going to ask you today to consider, are you saved? Because if you are saved, then I got good news. You will escape eternal punishment. You will. And the reason that you will is because Christ paid the way. And church, I want to tell you, that's a scandal that nobody outside of Christians can understand. And that's the kind of scandal that I can get behind. That's the kind of scandal that I can enjoy. That's the kind of scandal that I can celebrate because I got away with it. How about this? Everybody's going to stand before God. How about that? Everybody's going to. And if you don't understand the magnitude of that, right as you're almost asleep tonight, and I hope if, if this happens to you, somebody text me because I will crack up. 
because this is the kind of stuff that happens to me. Right as you're drifting off tonight and your brain starts doing that weird stuff that you start dreaming things that make no sense whatsoever. You know what I'm talking about? I, I'm the only weirdo, I guess. I mean, all kind of weird stuff right before you go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, it'll, I'll like start awake. It's happened to me more than once. I'll start awake and all of a sudden, it's like it overwhelms me. Someday I'm going to stand before Jesus. That's a reality, right? Amen. Everybody's going to stand before Jesus. And, and how many of us in here today, how many of you would like today, uh, and focus on me if you've wandered off, how many of you would like me to read you the transcript of your trial? Because you're going to stand before Jesus. And I just so happen, I'm in with the big guy, I just so happen to have an inside man Jay, that they let me have the transcript of your trial. I was able to get my hands on, this week, I was able to get my hands on the transcript of your trial. Would y'all like to hear what that's... Because, trust me, your trial, we already know what's going to happen. And I have the transcript. I know what is going to happen when you stand before God. Would you like to hear what's going to happen in your trial? And then you can tell me when I tell you what happens at your trial, you can tell me if you think that's scandalous or not. The verdict in your trial has already been handed down. It's already happened, and I've got the court transcript. I have it right here on this paper. I've got it, and I'm going to read to you the documents from your trial. And this is your trial that... This is your trial. Here's what happened. Uh, you were found guilty at this trial, but, you're gonna, but you got set free with no punishment. Let me show you. I'm going to read you. Let me read you your transcript. Are you all set now? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when, I, when you stand before the Lord, this is what your trial is going to look like. Now, let me see here. Noah. That, I don't think that's the right. You know what? I can't find anything in the record. You are righteous. And you're righteous because of what my son did for you. I made the one who knew no sin. This, is, this would be God's words. I made the one, my son, I made the one who knew no sin to be sin for you. So that when you got here today, Noah, that you would be righteous because of him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the, your eternal home, into the kingdom of heaven. How great is that? Now, let me ask you, is that scandalous? <laughs> he made the one. That's, that he is God the Father, and the one is Jesus. So God the Father made Jesus, and Jesus knew no sin. In other words, Jesus was completely sinless, and he made him to be sin for us. And, and that, that phrase, to be sin for us, that's a fancy word that theologians like to use, and they call it imputation. And it's a big word, but you don't want to miss it. And it simply means the act of reckoning a legal debt or credit to an account. 
So in the, in the Greco-Roman legal system, they understood it as an entering into the book. In other words, think about a ledger of charges. So when he says, the one who knew no sin to be sin, in other words, what had happened is there was something new written into your book. Something new was written into your book, and something was written into Christ. And, and here's the best way that I can explain it. Here's what it means when we say that, that he, he knew no sin, but he made him who knew no sin to be sin. This is what you need to know. Christ was sinless. And, and there's been some misconceptions about this, but Christ did not become a sinner on the tree. And here's why he didn't. Because even up until he took his last breath, he was the spotless, sinless son of God to the very end. What happened was he didn't become sin, but God treated him as if he was. And God the Father, he imputed to him my sin. And the spotless lamb became everything that I have ever done wrong. He became that. And then he imputed to me Christ's righteousness. Do you see how that works? So imputation went both ways. God treated Jesus as if he was a sinner, even though he wasn't. And Jesus didn't become a sinner. But then he treated me as if I had never sinned, even though I had. Our sin was imputed to Christ, and his righteousness was imputed to me. Amen? Now listen to what it says in Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. That's the transcript, church. Blessed is the one that the Lord will never charge with sin. The day's coming, and none of us in here are going to escape it. But one day, we're going to stand before him. And it can go one of two ways. You can have submitted your heart, mind, will, and emotions to Christ. You could have repented of your sin and accepted his sacrifice and had Christ's righteousness imputed to you. You can do that or you can take the penalty yourself. And it will be vastly different outcomes between the two. And the scandal is not that, is not that people will, be, will fail to repent of their sin. The real scandal is all the junk that I've done wrong, I won't have to pay for because Christ set me free. That's good news. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. I, I want to read that same passage to you out of the King James. That's where I memorize the verse and I like how it says it. In the King James it says, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, there's that word, impute sin. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. A man named Paul Washer um, I listened to uh, a little short six-minute long clip of him talking about this verse, and I wanted to read it. I just wanted to just give you a little bit of what he said. And I like the way that he addressed the sin issue. And, and he asked this question, and I will ask it to you. What's the greatest sin? So, uh, I, and obviously we can't all answer, but just think about that for me. What's the greatest sin? 
what would it be? What would be the greatest sin? Well, I think in order for us to answer what the greatest sin would be, we'd have to know what Jesus said when they asked him what the greatest commandment was, right? So when, when they asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment, what did he say first? Not second, what did he say first? Love the Lord with all your heart. So I would think that the greatest sin would be breaking the greatest commandment. And if the greatest commandment is love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, then you and I, church, will never be able to claim sinless perfection because there has never, ever been not one moment in your life, not even one, not even a millisecond, not a microsecond, not a blink of the eye or a flash of light, never a moment have you and I loved the Lord with all of our heart, never. We've never been able to do it. We have never, and even if you say, oh, brother, I do, trust me, you do not. It's impossible for us to love him the way he deserves to be loved. It's impossible for us fallen human beings to love God in the way that he deserves to be loved because we are flesh fallen creatures and there will always be some measure of selfishness to us. We'll never be able to fully escape it this side of heaven. And yet, there was never a moment or a millisecond, a blink of the eye or a glint of light. There was never even in a breath a time that Jesus didn't love the Lord with all of his heart. Is that true? There's never been a time that we could and there was never a time that Christ didn't. And in church, this is far more than just keeping commandments. This is beyond anything that you and I can fathom because we've never been able for a second, never for a second to love him with all that we are, yet Jesus did it every day, every moment of his life, and that is spectacular. Now imagine that this eternal son of God, imagine that he comes into our world, and for you that wouldn't be a big deal. But for Jesus to leave heaven and to come here to live among us is nearly impossible for us to understand. The Son of God became sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And what does that mean? Did, did Jesus devolve and become corrupt? No. He couldn't be a sacrifice if he had. He was still the holy and sinless Lamb of God. So what can this mean? To understand it, we have to, act, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to become the righteousness of God? And the moment, church, that a person believes in Christ, in that moment, a legal declaration is made on your account. And God legally declares you to be right with him. The moment that you believe in Jesus, God declares you right with him, and God treats you like you're right with him. The moment that you accept Christ. Let me say that again. The moment that you accept Christ, God, God makes you right with him, and then that's how he treats you. On the cross, God's people received the sinless nature of the Son. He imputed his righteousness to us, and he bore our guilt. And so before the very throne of God, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus was declared guilty and you were declared innocent that my church is a scandal he was perfect and holy and sinless yet God the father laid upon him the iniquity of us all I want to read that to you out of Isaiah 53 out of the King James he says surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. 
Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I want to close this message, and I want to read you just a little bit of what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And as you're listening to this, I'm going to ask you with all of your might, I'm going to ask you with all your might to try to understand that the man that these prophecies, I'm going to read you, that the man that these prophecies are about, I want you to try to comprehend this, that this man that I'm going to tell you about, that he lived perfect and upright and just and holy, and yet in his perfectness and uprightness and, and holiness, he was punished for you. And that's a scandal. That is scandalous grace. Let me just read you a few things just real quick. I just want to read you some prophecies, some things that the Bible has to say about Jesus. And I'm going to mostly look in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we read that he's the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 18, 18, we read that he will be a blessing to the nations. Job 19, 25 through 27, we find that he is a promised redeemer. In Psalm 2, we read that Christ is the Son of God. And in Psalm 72, we find that he is exalted by God. In Psalm 102, it says that he will come in glory. And in Psalm 109, it says that he prays for his enemies. In Psalm 110, we find that that he is a priest like Melchizedek. And in Psalm 118, we learn that he is the chief cornerstone. In Psalm 118, we also see that he is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Isaiah chapter 7 says that he will be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9 says that he is a light out of darkness and that he is God with us. Isaiah 11 says that he is full of wisdom and power. Isaiah 16, talking about our Messiah, says that he will reign in mercy. Isaiah 25 says that death will be swallowed up in victory. And in Isaiah 29 says that the deaf will hear and the blind will see. Isaiah 32, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In Isaiah 42, he's the meek servant. In Jeremiah 23, he is the Lord our righteousness. Hebrews 8, he is our high priest. And in Revelations 5, it says that he is the lamb on the throne. And in Luke chapter 1 says that he has a kingdom that is without end. And that person that all of those things was written about lived a completely sinless life and laid his life down willingly to take the blame and the punishment for you for everything that you have ever done wrong. For you. John chapter 4 verse 29 says, could this be the Messiah? What do y'all think? Could this be the Messiah? Uh, I, w- I want to close with this. I think the gospel is offensive. And, and 
you're probably immediately thinking about the, the world when I say that the gospel is offensive, and, and rightfully so, because it, it, the world doesn't like the gospel. The gospel is offensive, but, but I, I want to submit to you that I think the gospel is offensive even to people who claim to be a Christian. It's offensive because people don't like to, people wrestle with, and they don't like to accept that we are bad people. Nobody likes it when I say stuff like, you're a liar and a cheater and a thief and a murderer. We don't want to hear that. And maybe I offend you today by saying that. Maybe you're offended at me for saying that you're a liar and a thief and a cheater and a robber. Maybe, maybe you don't like that. But see, the gospel is that you are powerless to save yourself. There is so much wrong with, with humanity, we cannot save ourselves. And the gospel is not that you can save yourself a little bit. The gospel is not that, well, yeah, I know you're saying that, no, but what about? No, the gospel is this. You can't save yourself, but he can. That's the gospel. And when you finally, when we all, I shouldn't say you, when we all finally grasp That everything that I am before God, everything, not 99%, not 99.9, not 99 and 1,009%, 100% church, I stand before the Lord righteous and made whole. And in the court of God's people, in the court of judgment, I'm going to be found not guilty, not because of anything I have ever done but because I received scandalous grace, grace that went far beyond all of my shortcomings and all of my failures, and God said, Noah, I will do it for you. That's why. It's offensive because we don't want to own sin. We don't want to confess how sinful our hearts are. We don't like that. We like people to think that, well, really deep down I'm a good person. No, you're not. I, I know that's contrary, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really bold. I was trying to preach short. Uh, I'm going to be really bold. Churches where people hear, you're not good. God is. Those churches are not full of 20,000 people. People like to flock to churches where they say, you can have your best life now, and, and look at all what you can have now, and oh, God's going to answer all of these prayers, and you're going to, if you'll just confess this, you'll have this car and that house, and oh, everything's going to be good. People don't want to hear that we are hopelessly incapable of surrendering to God's standard, and we're only able to do it because when I cried out to a holy God, his Holy Spirit filled me and it caused me to become somebody new. And I walk this out by the power of him and not anything I can do. It's offensive. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it? Next time somebody tells you that they think people are generally good and have good hearts, read them Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and wicked, and who can know it? And to be told that you're hopelessly wicked, it offends people. Because we like to be good, and we like to be nice, and we like to be holy, and we like to think we don't really sin. I mean, they sin. Those people sin. I don't. I make mistakes. Yeah, I'm out there looking at you, and I'm seeing some of y'all, and I'm like, those folks, I know what you did. Now, that was a sin, but I, no, I don't do that. I just make mistakes. Hey, guess what? I'm a sinner, but that's not the end of my story. 
<laughs> there's, an old, there's an old gospel song. Most of y'all would hate it. I like old quartet music. And they sing this song, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And people don't like that. I've heard people say, ah, that's, I'm not a sinner. I got news for you. You know who we are? We are redeemed and we are transformed. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. All of that is true. But I am who I am because of scandalous grace. Our sin was forgiven in Christ, but sin left us with a problem. Our sin was forgiven, but, and our sin was addressed, but what about righteousness? I got a little ahead of my notes there, but, but what about righteousness? See, Jesus didn't just take our sin. He also deposited his righteousness in us. Harvey, I've been made righteous because he deposited that in me. So I don't want you to leave here with your head down like, oh, Noah said we're all dirtbags and we're, you know, I don't want you to leave here with that because that wasn't the end of the story. Guess what? You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Not only was our sin imputed to Christ, but Christ imputed us with his righteousness. And that's good news. That's a story better than Hollywood could write. So when we place our faith in him, he credits our spiritual bank account with his own perfection. Wow. This man named, uh, this man named Michael Green, Brandon, if I could get you uh, to come up. This man named Michael Green, he shared this illustration and it's, a, it's a, an illustration that uh, culturally it doesn't fit super well, but, but I hope you get the message behind the illustration. There's a community, and I don't know how many years ago this was. So I would guess it was probably in the 1800s. Uh, but there was a certain community in England, and in that community somebody had been stealing sheep. And so uh, the forces of law in the community, they were unable to apprehend this sheep thief. Well, they, they narrowed down to a certain farmer, and they bring this farmer before the judge, and they accuse this farmer of being the sheep thief. He had a trial, and they accused him of stealing the sheep. But this man was able to establish that he was innocent of any connection with the offense of stealing sheep, and he was able to establish his innocence beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, he was able to say, yeah, that those sheep were stolen, but I was, I was over there. I, was out of t- I wasn't, even in, wasn't even home. I was gone. And so he was proven to be innocent. So he proves his innocence, and, and when he does, the judge says this to him. He says, you are an innocent man, but somebody has been stealing sheep. You are an innocent man, but somebody has been stealing sheep, and I must show to this community what the law would do to a sheep thief. And then the judge committed the innocent man to prison to, quote, uphold public justice. What justice? Now, that community would call that a scandal because this innocent man was sent to prison. Church, I got news for you today. We have received a scandal far greater than that because an innocent man took your place that we could be set free. Charles Spurgeon, he said this quote, and it might be the best thing I've ever read in my entire life. He says, you stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. (laughs) I stand before God as if I was Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he was me.